You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. CISA warns of threats to industrial control systems. Ransomware can be operated either in the course of privateering or as an APT side hustle. Security firms outline new and evolving threats and vulnerabilities. Reaction continues to the Pegasus Project's reports on intercept tools. Joe Kerrigan unpacks recent Facebook revelations and allegations. Our guest is Dave Humphrey from Bain Capital on his tech investment bets and predictions. And do you know what military grade means? Neither do we, but we think we have an idea. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, July 21st, 2021. The U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency yesterday released an account of six cyber attacks on industrial control systems that occurred between 2011 and 2016, suggesting that more such attacks may be in the offing. The history is interesting in its specific attribution of the attacks to nation-states, one each to China and Iran, the remaining four to Russia. CISA also updated its alert on a Chinese cyber campaign that targeted pipelines between 2011 and 2013. The campaign wasn't confined to a single pipeline or a single operator, and the attackers generally approached their targets by social engineering. CISA wrote, quote, 23 U.S. natural gas pipeline operators targeted from 2011 to 2013 in this spearfishing and intrusion campaign. Of the known targeted entities, 13 were confirmed compromises, 3 were near misses, and 7 had an unknown depth of intrusion. The goal of the campaign seemed to be reconnaissance and staging. CISA concluded that the U.S. government has attributed this activity to Chinese state-sponsored actors. CISA and the FBI assess that these actors were specifically targeting U.S. pipeline infrastructure for the purpose of holding U.S. pipeline infrastructure at risk. Additionally, CISA and the FBI assess that this activity was ultimately intended to help China develop cyber attack capabilities against U.S. pipelines to physically damage pipelines or disrupt pipeline operations. Theft of intellectual property was not the apparent goal— Again, quoting CISA, CISA and FBI assess that these intrusions were likely intended to gain strategic access to the ICS networks for future operations rather than for intellectual property theft. This assessment was based on the content of the data that was being exfiltrated and the TTPs used to gain that access. 
One victim organization set up a honeypot that contained decoy documents with content that appeared to be SCADA-related data and sensitive organizational information. According to this organization, the SCADA-related decoy content was exfiltrated within 15 minutes of the time it was made available in the honeypot. Other sensitive decoy information, including financial and business-related information, was ignored. End quote. The warnings this week and the attribution of ICS threats to three major hostile states would seem to figure in the U.S. response to more recent incidents, including not only MSS exploitation of vulnerable Microsoft Exchange server instances, but also Russian-tolerated or enabled ransomware attacks. It also coincided with the U.S. Transportation Security Administration's issuance of further security guidelines for pipeline operators. The guidelines were motivated in the first instance by R. Evil's ransomware attack on Colonial Pipeline, but CISA's revisiting of China's earlier campaign is more than coincidence. Russian toleration of ransomware gangs operating from its territory against targets in other countries was a sticking point in the Russo-American summit and follow-on conversations. The relationship between gangs and the Kremlin has been described as analogous to privateering, The gangs are able to romp freely through permissible targets and keep whatever they can steal. The Washington Post today describes how ransomware has become a feature of recent Chinese activity. In this case, the Ministry of State Security appears to contract with organizations to carry out operations under MSS direction. The contractors are then permitted some latitude for extortion or theft. This is more of a side hustle than it is privateering. The threat actors aren't roving cyberspace looking for prizes, but they're able to take prizes in the course of operating under state direction. Several reports from security firms this morning describe research into attack vectors and malicious techniques. Intisur describes its detection of a new attack vector hitting Kubernetes clusters through misconfigured Argo workflows instances. Again, it's the configuration. Zscaler looks at Joker malware and outlines some of the techniques its operators have used to insinuate their code into apps that make it into the Google Play Store, and from there infect victims who install the malicious apps. The techniques include URL shorteners, string obfuscation key changes, and abusing the notification process. Joker steals sensitive information from infected devices and typically enrolls users in expensive and unwanted services. Reversing Labs describes how an NPM package can be used to introduce vulnerabilities into software supply chains. They've found one NPM package that's being used to steal credentials stolen in Chrome browsers. Bitdefender has seen a spike in the wild of a new malware strain, Mosaic Loader, a downloader that can deliver a range of payloads to victims. Mosaic Loader propagates by advertising and representing itself as cracked software, Its victims are typically would-be users of pirated software. This should give everyone an incentive to resist the temptation to download stuff they shouldn't download. It's unlikely it will amount to a virtual free lunch. Investigation into the Pegasus Intercept tool continues with The Guardian's account of alleged corrupt abuse of surveillance tools. While much of the attention NSO Group has drawn has centered on its sale of Pegasus to repressive regimes, there are other problems with the tool's dissemination. 
In the case of at least one journalist murdered in Mexico, apparently by a drug cartel, The Guardian suggests that the intercept tool could have been delivered to the cartel by corrupt law enforcement officials who had access to it in the course of their duties. Reaction to government use of Pegasus continues to run strongly in many countries. Opposition members of India's parliament protested what the Washington Post quotes them as characterizing as a national security threat posed by the government of Prime Minister Narendra Modi itself, which has been accused of using NSO Group tools to monitor journalists, dissidents, and political opponents. The Post also says that France has opened investigations into reports that French officials were themselves targeted by operators of the intercept tool. Morocco is suspected of running such an operation against French targets, but the North African country's government has denied doing so. And finally... A lot of reporting about cyber incidents lately has referred to military-grade malware or spyware or cyber weapons. A lot of the coverage of the Pegasus Project has used the expression, we don't want to criticize reporters and editors doing their front-page best, but we'd like to point out that military-grade is almost invariably a marketing expression. In the case of intercept tools like Pegasus, it means nothing more than effectively used, well-designed, or maybe expensive or sophisticated. But military-grade carries a lot of scare value and also a gloss of official-sounding gravitas. But really, there's no such thing as military-grade, although we've heard it applied to the sheet metal used in pickup truck beds as well as malware. There is, in the U.S. at any rate, and other countries have their equivalents, mil-spec, which means roughly produced in accordance with the requirements specified in a contract. So, our military desk pleads, let's resolve to hold off on calling anything military-grade. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. 
Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. My guest today is Dave Humphrey, co-head of Bain Capital's North American private equity business, where he's responsible for $10 billion in technology portfolio investments. I checked in with Dave Humphrey for his insights on the cybersecurity investment market, which areas have his attention, and where he thinks we're headed. Well, I think it's a fascinating time to be investing in technology and to be investing in cybersecurity broadly. And I think information and identities that are flowing through all of those cloud and on-premises applications. And so we're seeing a lot of growth in just the security markets generally, as there's a lot of growth in the technology markets. But we're also seeing a lot of innovation as new ways of using technology and new methods of deployment or growing methods of deployment are leading to new attack vectors and also therefore leading to new methods of defense. So we think it's an exciting time to be investing in technology writ large and certainly an exciting time to be investing in the security sector. I think if you were to rewind several years ago, there were lots of cybersecurity themes around fortifying the perimeter and defense in in depth, um, trying to keep bad actors out of networks or out of corporate technology. I think now there's a broad acknowledgement that security cannot just be about keeping bad actors out of corporate environments, but rather presuming that they are indeed in and using things like artificial intelligence and machine learning to evaluate and detect and respond to those actors that may already be inside corporate environments and to protect the uh, identity and data information that's that's flowing in and out of, of corporate networks. What sort of advice do you have for the companies that are out there who are on the rise? You know, those startups who are hoping to attract the attention of organizations like your own. What sort of uh, advice would you have for them? Uh, So the advice that I would have really for any company, whether a startup or an established business, is to focus on what they do best and to distance their offering relative to their competitors and to do so in a way that creates a lot of value for, for their customers. We gravitate to businesses that solve a really important problem and that that create real competitive advantage in in doing so because they can continue to innovate and grow and and scale on the basis of that premise. Our recent investment in in ExtraHop, which our pending investment, I should say, in ExtraHop, I think is is one example of that in the security sector. Our investment in Nutanix last year is another in the infrastructure markets. But we really would encourage businesses to focus on what they do best and to keep innovating. Is your outlook optimistic? Or are you look looking forward to the, the next few years here? I'm a perpetual optimist, and so <laughs> our, our outlook is indeed optimistic. I think that we see 
a lot of innovation going on. I mean, it's pretty remarkable if you step back the smartphone as we know it today. The iPhone still only came out 14 years ago. The iPad, I think, 11. Mm -hmm. Cloud infrastructure on the basis of which we know it really only became a scale piece of enterprise infrastructures within still probably the last five, six, seven years and still has a long way to go. All of that innovation and change is creating yet further innovation and growth and opportunity and allowing businesses to to come up with new ways of doing things and things that we can't even imagine as we sit here today. So as investors, I think that's that's an exciting thing. We're looking for businesses that have created some real advantage in doing that and supporting those businesses through that journey. That's Dave Humphrey from Bain Capital. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute and also my co-host over on the Hacking Humans podcast. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. You know, uh, this new book came out uh, targeting uh, Facebook. It's called An Ugly Truth. It's written by (laughs) Shira Frankel and Cecilia Kang. Uh, and it's uh, quite sensational and attracting a lot of attention. But there, there are some specifics here that I think are worth digging into. I know a couple of things have caught your eye. Yes. What are you looking at here, Joe? So I'm looking at the, uh, the article that was on Business Insider earlier uh, last week. And it talks about how between January of 2014 and August of 2015, so like almost a period of, of uh, two years, the company fired 52 employees over exploiting user data for personal purposes. One engineer who is unnamed tapped into the, into the data to confront a woman with whom he had been vacationing in Europe after she left the hotel the, that they had been sharing. So they were at the hotel. They got into some kind of spat, and she said, that's it. I'm out of here. And then he was able to find out where she was staying because he accessed her personal data on, uh, on Facebook and uh, found out her location and was able to physically walk up to her. Hmm. Another Facebook engineer used his employee access to dig up information on a woman with whom he had gone on a date after she ghosted him, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And in the company systems, he had access to years of private conversations with friends over Facebook Messenger, events attended, photographs uploaded, and here's one of the parts that's really, that really irritates me, including those she had deleted, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, I know I hear you on Grumpy Old Geeks frequently asking about this. Uh, what does deleted mean on Facebook? It doesn't mean anything. It just means we're not <laughs> showing it to you anymore. Right, um, right. Deleted for thee, but not for me. Right. Uh, posts that she had commented or clicked on, which is another interesting thing. Uh, Facebook tracks just about everything you do with that mouse. They, they have scripts in the background that send everything back. So even clicking on a post, they know that you clicked on it. We, we've actually seen information that if you start responding to something and then you, you decide, nah, I'm not going to respond. I'm not getting involved in this. They, they still have what you started typing. They still mm-hmm. have that in their records. And it's actually fa- something that's fairly simple to do with, with JavaScript on the back end. It just sends it up to the server. And he was able to access all this information based on the Facebook app she had installed on her phone. Uh, right, and, and real-time it, location and data he was as able well. To see, yeah, he was able to see her real-time location. So he was able to really, really stalk this woman, uh, yeah. which, which is unconscionable. Uh, 
The book says that Facebook employees were granted user this kind of data in order to, quote, cut the red tape that would slow down the engineers. But there was nothing but just honest behavior keeping the employees from accessing things they shouldn't be, from abusing mm-hmm. their access. Uh, and mm-hmm. that that is probably good for 98% of the people. But Facebook had, at the time, 16,000 employees with access to this this user data. So, right. you know, do the math on that. <laughs> it's it's a lot of bad actors who can who can just access the information. Now, Facebook says every time we found somebody accessing the information, we promptly fired them. Uh, mm-hmm. Whenever they accessed it inappropriately, but how many times did they not catch people inappropriately accessing the information? I'd like to know yeah. that. Um, yeah, it's uh, you know th- there have been suggestions within within Facebook to limit the uh, number of people that have access to this data to about five thousand, <laughs> which mm. which is which is you know a step down from sixteen thousand, but it's still a lot of people. Um, this is this is why I. I yeah, I really don't trust Facebooks, uh, Dave. I really don't. Yeah, don't. yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I think this. You want to, it would be great if we lived in a world where you could rely on the goodwill of people uh, to to make the right decisions and do the right things. Right. But in a world where in a world where human beings have emotions, yes, <laughs> and, and we and and I'd say there's probably not a one among us who has not been carried away by our emotions and behaved in a way that we were later embarrassed by or ashamed of. Uh, you have to put guardrails on these things, on people's private information, as this shows. Uh, Absolutely. You know, a, a, a jilted lover. Uh, may not be reacting in a rational way. And so you need to protect the people on your platform. Um, and to me, this speaks to a culture certainly back when this was a problem. I mean, who you know, this this may be a fixed problem by now. Right. But as this book points out, uh, back in 2015, um, that was not the case. Yeah. Facebook was prioritizing you know, what is the move fast, break things? They were prioritizing their right. engineers' ability to do the work that they wanted to do over their users' privacy. Right. And uh, if you're a Facebook user, I think you need to take that into consideration, how much you engage with the with that network. And particularly when you see things like your deleted photos aren't actually deleted, to me, that's a real violation of trust. Right. I would agree. I mean, that that would be something that would be simple, to implement, right? If I mm-hmm. if I go ahead and I say I want to delete this photo, I think we both understand Facebook that I'm wanting to delete <laughs> this photo, and you, I, I, it's pretty clear I expect you to also delete the photo, right? Right. I don't right. expect I, you to, I, yeah. to keep it on your hard drive forever and keep it associated nope. with me. I don't expect nope. you to set some flag in the database to delete it. I actually want that photo deleted from your system. Um, well, I, Joe, I, you clearly have not read the EULA from, from start to finish. Where, <laughs> no, of course not, Dave. Who does read the EULA from right, start to finish? Right, right, exactly. All right, well, uh, as we said at the outset, I mean, this book is attracting a lot of uh, attention and, and certainly uh, a bit sensational in the way it presents things. But I think uh, at, at, at the core, there are some really interesting issues here worthy of discussion. So uh, glad we had... Glad we had the opportunity to discuss it here. Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. And that's the Cyberwire. 
for links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, the military-grade Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, military-grade editor, Jennifer Iben, military-grade CSO Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner, decidedly not military-grade. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.